Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Tiki mai kake mai and welcome. From RNZ National, here's our changing world. Volcanoes. During an eruption, volcanoes can spit out all sorts of stuff, from molten lava to flying rocks, known as ballistics, as well as ash. All of these things might be an issue for Auckland in the future and are exercising the minds of natural hazard researchers around the country. Geologist Thomas Wilson at the University of Canterbury is particularly interested in volcanic ash and the effect it might have on vital infrastructure. Services such as power and water as well as things like house roofs. Research assistant George Williams is responsible for carrying out experiments to test the effect of ash on all these things. And that's where the ash lab comes in. Formerly known as the Volcanic Ash Testing Facility, it's a small corner of a dusty basement. It's the only place we can throw the ash around and not get in too much trouble. So, uh, what we're looking to do is we use quite precise um, parameters of volcanic ash to expose it to different infrastructure components and look at how they perform under different loads or uh, doses of, of ash and uh, see if they keep working or, or not. And are you using real volcanic ash? In some cases we use real ash, but we've ended up developing a pseudo-ash, which is a ash which we've milled down from volcanic rock. And the reason for that is it gives us the volume that we need, because we're using quite large volumes, but we can also control the specifications of it, so the grain size or the composition, which uh, becomes important when we're trying to look at what's the factors causing the damage to the infrastructure components. Have you got some ash you can show me? We've got lots of ash. In fact, we're right located right next to sort of the ash bank. So you've got a small sample in front of me. Volcanic ash from BA9 engine on the 24th of the 6th, 1982, Mount Galungang, West Java. So it was a London to Auckland flight, and it, basically when it flew through this ash cloud... At 37,000 feet. At 37,000 feet, it lost all four of its engines. And um, this, I think, was basically the first time in the world that we'd ever seen a plane flying through such an dense amount of ash. Really huge pieces of ash. And Tom and I were both really surprised at how coarse this ash was, because we sort of expected, yeah, more of this finer grained end of the stuff. It lost all four engines, and they, had to, they tried to restart them 17 times as the planes literally gliding down without power and eventually got one or two of them going and were able to do an emergency landing in Jakarta. It was one of the first really big lessons where with this volcanic ash it's most because it's cooled so quickly it's mostly glass so the internal combustion temperatures of these jet engines melts the glass and ends up clogging the engines. So this was one of the first really good examples where we started to get an understanding of how modern infrastructure or technology systems can be highly vulnerable to volcanic um, ash in this, this sort of way. So that, that led to a, a large amount of management systems put in place. And then I guess a similar sort of experience happened with the 2010 Ilefnionokal eruption from Iceland. Oh, very good. I was just about to call it the unpronounceable volcanic eruption in Iceland. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I don't think you. I've nailed it. <laughs> so enter exhibit stage left. Oh, not ash from that eruption. I wish it was. This was some of the more painstakingly produced ash 
because um, basically the finer you want to get it, the longer it takes. And when we're looking at super distal ashes like that, the only particles that are going to be making it are these really fine-grained ones. So this is some really it's soft... Like cornstarch or something. Yeah, yeah, it's like that. It's really fine. So in the case of um, two or three years ago, um, we were looking at how ash might cause problems for high-voltage um, transmission equipment. So we were over in the high-voltage um, laboratory of electrical engineering here on campus and gently sprinkling the ash across a um, insulator string and then seeing when a, a big flashover or, or short circuit might, might be induced. But at the moment, what George has been working on is he's looking at different filtration strategies for looking at when diesel generators uh, might uh, block up or, or become clogged when exposed to different levels of volcanic ash. So this is that idea that we've had a big volcanic eruption, the main power's gone down, people are using diesel generators to keep life ticking over. That's exactly right. So... We've done a lot of work overseas looking at how different cities and, and I guess regions perform when they've been exposed to a big ash fall. And what, probably the most common infrastructure outage uh, is loss of electricity supply. And the reason for that is the volcanic ash, when it um, is formed and when it's in that big volcanic cloud, uh, it ends up getting a lot of really soluble reactive salts on the surface of it. And so when it becomes slightly wet, it's, you know, it's full of ions, and so it's uh, really, really conductive, so when it, uh, or electrically conductive. So when it falls onto the um, insulators, um, it leads to that big um, short circuit that, that can occur. So what it becomes really important in terms of understanding um, whether diesel generators will work or not is for those big infrastructure companies, things like Watercare in Auckland, we're looking at water supplies, they'll be reliant on diesel generators to keep working if we lose power supply. So the Auckland Engineering Lifelines Group which is a cluster of infrastructure companies um, which is interested in increasing disaster resilience. They commissioned us to look at um, what the filters would look like if they're exposed to ash and then also for us to have a look at what some quick fixes would be for quickly getting onto the diesel generators to enhance their filtration and, and what's appropriate and what's not. We're standing in front of this test rig where we introduce ash into one chamber and we have a big, powerful fan which pulls it through various different filters that we're interested in checking out and basically looking at a couple of things, seeing what types of ash aren't very easy to filter out, so thinking about particular eruption styles which could be problematic and thinking about also how quickly do we need to replace filters in order for diesel generators to keep operating during an emergency. How many different kinds of filters were you testing? Basically, we're looking at ones which you can quickly apply like on the outside of a diesel generator during an emergency. There were probably only a couple which were really effective, of like five or six. So you eliminated some pretty quickly. Yeah, basically, the more ash and the more air that um, a filter blocks out, the more like the higher spec it is. It, it clogs up too quickly and it doesn't let enough oxygen through for the diesel generator to operate. So it's finding that trade-off between letting in enough air for the generator to operate and letting and blocking out enough ash so that it doesn't destroy the whole thing. There's an example in Argentina, a town called Bariloche, uh, received quite a lot of ash in 2011 from the Cordon Calgi eruption. If um, New Zealanders will remember that from the eruption which shut down air traffic over, over us um, around about May, wasn't it, I think, 2011. They received around about 5 to 10 centimetres of ash on their towns. It's kind of like Queenstown of Argentina, a big venture capital. And they, a lot of their power supply comes from diesel generation. And so they had some quite coarse um, filters for just keeping out the, the sort of dusty um, areas around there. And they ended up um, blocking up really quickly under this, this sort of ash load. 
So what they were looking at was trying to keep the, ge- the generator running in terms of the aspiration, so enough oxygen to come through and combust uh, the fuel mix, but mostly it was around the cooling side of it, so keep the engine cool enough to, um, to keep running. And they ended up uh, blocking up, they got too hot, they ended up shutting down, and much of the town, um, town lost power, which compounded the effects of this asphalt falling on the, on the city. So we took that um, and reported that back to a lot of the New Zealand companies, and uh, they were like, ooh, we better probably do something about this, hence the, the Auckland um, group commissioning it here. But one of the really strong things which we were directed to from the, the Auckland Lifelines group was exactly as George was saying, is what's a quick fix to get on there quickly that'll work, we don't have to replace uh, continually. So you, you obviously don't want to have maintenance staff coming out all the time through all night continually replacing filters. And uh, you know you can think of it as a lesson from the Canterbury earthquake sequence, where in Christchurch, um, one of the uh, the telecommunications exchanges with they were they had generator support, but they they needed to keep topping it up with fuel on and on and on um, for for days and weeks at a time. You know, just one of these disaster lessons which uh, which apply across different uh, types of hazards. So, what was the best quick fix? I think the best thing to do is actually just prepare people for the fact that they need to know. Like what Tom was saying, you don't want to have lots of high maintenance going on, but if people know during an eruption that this is going to be an eventuality, we actually need the maintenance to increase in order to keep power going. As long as people prepare for that and they have lots of filters on site and they learn how to change them quickly, because the, in the meeting I remember people saying it takes three hours to change a filter, but we were telling them in certain eruption types you're going to need to be replacing them every hour to every half hour, so there needs to be a change and what's going on in order for people to prepare. Otherwise, yeah, there will be rolling blackouts and no way of having emergency power. So one of the really cool things which George was looking at here was rather than simply using uh, you know, a, a traditional sort of filter that you would imagine, like, a, like in your car or in your air conditioning system, for example, he was looking at things like putting a, a hood over top of the air intake and just trying to deflect as much ash from falling onto the intake area as possible as a way to reduce that filter replacement cycle. And you know, quite a really simple fix, which probably costs several hundred dollars, could, could potentially save um, large amounts of downtime for these, these really important generators. But the, the value of doing this in the laboratory environment is that we get the chance to test and experiment, make lots and lots of mistakes and, and fail, and then eventually come up with some solutions which we think will probably work pretty well in, in reality. Now you just picked something up. Is that oh, your ash deflector? I, I just thought I'd show you the hood that Tom was talking about. So just when he says simple, he means simple. It's just a metal hood, which we know is good at stopping the larger, coarser pieces of ash from getting entrained into the filter. So this just sits in front of it. And it particularly works well when you've got low air velocities coming into the filter, um, whereas uh, it doesn't work so well if you've got a high velocity, like the ash still manages to get entrained. This doesn't deflect it very well. So it does depend a bit on the style of the eruption. Yeah, and that, that's been the critical thing. So um, a lot of the study's been focused on an Auckland scenario, so looking at what uh, assets are in Auckland and what they might be exposed to. So from in terms of an Auckland volcanic field eruption, we would anticipate the grain size and the density of the ash that's produced is actually quite quite large. So quite coarse, um, you know, really what you'd imagine sandy size, even even coarser, maybe the size of your um, of your fingernail. Um, all the way through to you know potentially bigger stuff, and it, it's all quite dense and heavy, so it falls out of the of the um, eruption cloud or the ash cloud quite quickly. But if you had something a scenario where you might have a lot of what we call phreatomagmatic eruptions, so where the magma interacts with water, it effectively fragments it really really efficiently and produces lots of really fine grained material. 
But again, when we've done experiments with that, because it's wet and, and sort of, well, very humid at least, it aggregates together and, and again, falls out relatively quickly. But what we anticipate is um, the big problem for Auckland will be from a distal eruption, so somewhere from Taranaki or maybe the Tongariro volcano or Taupo or Katina, where if a big ash cloud heads directly to Auckland and continually ashes onto Auckland for a, a potentially a number of hours or even days, is that dose that the, the country's getting, or the, sorry, that the area is getting, could, uh, could be fairly problematic. And the ash that we'd anticipate being exposed there is very, very fine-grained, kind of like talcum powder would be the way to think of it. And so that becomes quite tricky from a filtration point of view in that you're trying to keep some of it out as much as best you can, but at the same time keeping the airflow up, as George said before, to keep that, uh, that cooling and aspiration of the, of the engine moving. So it's a, it's a bit of a delicate balancing act. So one of the things that George has been exploring is all that, those ranges of different ash sizes and different ash um, concentrations in the atmosphere that it might be exposed to to get some sort of broad performance limits that, uh, that we might sort of say, look, this type of ash scenario, probably no worries. But this one, this is something we would need to worry about. And as we move towards better and better forecasting of our hazards with the likes of Geonet, if we were able to say to the infrastructure companies, look, an ash eruption's occurred, we think this is going to be a bit of a nasty one for you, start preparing, um, that's the sort of warning that we want to be able to, be able to put out quickly and, and it's got the value of this type of work, or well, we hope. <laughs> that was Thomas Wilson from the Department of Geological Sciences at the University of Canterbury. And you also heard from research assistant George Williams. That's all for now. For more, check us out on the web, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. Matewa.